Our passage today is from Judges 8, 29 to 35. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon and 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abyssalites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember their Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the reading of God's word. So in Merced, California, this past May, there was a man by the name of uh, Stanley Shepard who found himself inside of a J.C. Penney store. I'm sorry, Stephen Stanley, not Stanley Shepard. Stephen Stanley who found himself inside of a J.C. Penney store and took it upon himself to come to the jewelry counter, break the glass, reach in, and begin stealing as much jewelry as he could. Now, there were two men nearby who saw what he was doing and felt that it was contingent upon them to act. They knew that he was about to steal money. They weren't even security or anything like that. They just saw what he was doing. And so uh, two men took it upon themselves to try and detain this man while he was stealing from the store. They grabbed a hold of him, but Stephen proved to be um, quite feisty. He was throwing punches, knocking them around. They, they wrestled him to the ground, but Stephen had something on him. He had a, a pepper spray can, and he decided that he would deploy it against those two guys who were trying to restrain him. So he pulled out the pepper spray, spray can, took aim, and let go. There was just one problem. He wasn't pointing it at his two captors, it was pointing right back at himself. Needless to, say, needless to say, he subdued himself without the help of anyone around him. They were able to restrain him, and then eventually the cops came, and he was charged with felony, ultimately being charged with robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, and wouldn't you know it, he had some drugs on him, so he got a drug charge as well. A story like that is just a classic story of kind of um, reaping what you sow, you know, thinking that you're going to get away with something and not getting away with it. I think that we kind of like those stories. I think we like the idea of somebody doing a bad thing and then getting caught because deep down in all of us, there's this great desire for this little thing called justice. We love when the bad guy gets caught. We love when people get what they deserve, right? It's just, it's just part of, of who we are, this call, this desire um, for justice. Why do we like stories like this? It's because it's, it's deep within inside of us. The reality, though, is that in the world that we live in, not everybody pepper sprays themselves in the face while doing a bad deed, right? Sometimes evil people appear to get away with their evil deeds. The psalmist in Psalm 73, struggled with this. In Psalm 73, starting in verse 3, the psalmist wrote these words. I think they're appropriate. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Have you seen that happen in your life? You know, you got guys like Stephen Stanley who kind of get what they deserve, but then there's people that are like, this person deserves a lot, but they're not getting it. Today we're going to come to a passage in Judges chapter 9, a passage that speaks to the idea and topic of justice in a very unique way. And when I began studying this passage this week, I had no idea how significant it would be even for my own heart and mind. Some of you might know a little bit of a story. I've shared it in bits and pieces. Two years ago, right before COVID began, we were approached with four other families about the opportunity to uh, adopt some babies that would be born. There were about uh, 10 at the time, and it was a very unique situation. Because of confidentiality and legal matters, I can't get into all the details of it. But there were some others who were significantly abused and wanted to put their children up for adoption. And so over two years ago, those children were born, and they were being cared for for the last two years in a very safe and caring environment all together. Um, on Monday, I got a message um, we've remained open to the potential of that adoption because of legal matters with the federal government and a whole bunch of things. It just simply hasn't taken place. And so these children have lived without homes for, for two years, though they have these families that are ready to adopt them. Well, on Monday we got the news that a situation had arisen. The, the, the babies, now toddlers, had been taken a few months ago from the home that they had been staying in, a very safe and loving and caring home, and they were placed with different foster families. And on Monday, we found out that one of those toddlers was beaten and murdered by one of its foster families. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, maybe this is going to turn the tide. Maybe this is going to wake up the world to the reality of what's, what's happening here. We're going to get these babies into homes. The sad news is, if you've been around the foster system, listen, there are some good people that are in it, but there's also a lot of bad people. The government's broken don't even know what is ultimately going to happen, whether or not they're going to even be able to, to, to prove or if charges will actually come against this family. It's a mess. And so I look at that and I'm like, where's the justice in that? Are those people going to get what, what they deserve? Like, how do I even think, should I think that these people need to get what they deserve? What about the people who place them in the home? The birth mom who found out about the situation, who herself was starting a whole new life, felt the need to take justice into her own hands and has sworn that she's going to kill the family that did it and all the people involved. Why does she feel that way? These people need to get what they, what, d deserve. How do we think about a world where, yes, we long for justice and we see at times justice taking place and some people getting what they deserve because of their own foolishness, but, but how do we process through all of, of this? Nestled in the book of Judges is a really random kind of a story that at first blush, you'd look at it and you say, that's an interesting story. But what does that have to tell us as God's people uh, uh, about justice and, and how we're to think about these situations that arise in our world? Well, that's what we're going to explore. Our scripture reading this morning was from actually Judges chapter 8 because Judges chapter 9 is the continuation of the story of Gideon. 
Last two weeks, we've been talking about Gideon, a man whom God raised up to deliver the people from the Midianites. When they were being oppressed, God brought forth Gideon, and, and he delivered them. He started well, but he finished poorly. And it, where we pick up in chapter 9, we're going we're gonna to read about his family and what happened after he died. But, but there's this person that's mentioned at the end of chapter 8 that, I, that you need to know a little bit about as we enter into chapter 9. And his name is Abimelech. In chapter 8 here, we see that Gideon had this son by the name of Abimelech. And he's going to factor huge in our story this morning. And here's the deal with Abimelech. There's kind of three things you need to know. First, he's the son of Gideon, but he's the son of Gideon's concubine. Not one of Gideon's wives, but one of Gideon's concubines. Why is that important? Because it meant that Abimelech, while a son of Gideon, would not receive any inheritance from his father when he died. The second thing that we learned in our scripture reading this morning is that he was raised in the city of Shechem versus the city of Ophrah. Ophrah was where Gideon and the rest of his family lived. Shechem was the city a little bit further away. And so not only was he the son of Gideon's concubine, but he was also not raised by Gideon. So Gideon's son, but not raised by Gideon, not raised with his other brothers, who number over 70. And then the final thing that you need to know about Abimelech is while he wasn't raised by Gideon, but he was Gideon's son. His name, do you remember this from last week? His name, Abimelech, or Abimelech, literally means, my father is king. My father is king, or my father is the king. Why is this important? Because Gideon was not entitled the king of Israel at this time. But at the end of his conquering of the Midianites, the people came to him and said, Gideon, we want to make you the king over us. And he said in a very pious and righteous way, I will not be your king and my sons will not rule as king over you. And although he said that the rest of his life, he functioned as a king, he acted like a king, and the people treated him as a king. He did what God didn't want him to ultimately do. And, and so why is this important? Well, he names his son Abimelech. And so Abimelech grows up knowing that his dad is Gideon, but not being raised by his father, Yet his name being a reminder to him every day that his dad was the functional king of Israel. And if you're the son of a king, then it might seem that you could have right to reign in his place when he dies. At least that's how things used to unfold. And so as we come to Judges chapter 9, Abimelech puts forward a plan. We don't know how old he is, but look with me at verse 1. This story is broken up into three parts. The first part being what I call the rebellion. So if you're taking notes, it's called the, this part's called the rebellion, verses 1 through 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon's other name, he goes by two names, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, and he said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am bone, and I am your bone and your flesh. Gideon has died, Israel's looking for a leader, and Abimelech sees the vacuum, and he goes to Shechem, which was, a, which was kind of a stronghold, an important city, and he goes to its leader, and he says, listen, there's a vacuum of leadership here, needs to be filled. It can't be filled by all 70 of Gideon's sons. I have this idea, it should be filled by one person, and wouldn't it be great if that one person actually came from our town? And you know what, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, not only would it be great that it'd be reigned by one person from our town, I'm available. How about I step into the vacuum? 
That's his plan, but now we see kind of the rebellion. In verse 3, it says, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. They said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So Abimelech wants to be the leader, but he needs some support. He needs to have a show of force because he doesn't believe for one second that his brothers are going to give up the right to rule or allow him to rule over them unless he exerts some power. The sad thing is is that we know that he hires worthless and reckless fellows, and he does so with money that have been offered to a pagan god, which means the leaders of Shechem are already worshiping a false god. They're really not following the Lord. I think that's part of the reason why they get behind Abimelech here. And the plan that Abimelech has is not just simply that he would meet his brothers in battle. The next verses tell us his plan was ultimately to assassinate, execute, to murder all of his siblings so no one else could lay claim to the throne. Look at verse 5. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men, and he does it on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. What you just read was graphic and horrendous. It's just one short little verse. But he goes to his brothers, like I said, knowing that they wouldn't give in to his reign and his rule. And so without asking any questions, without meeting them in battle, instead, he surprises, he captures them. And one by one, on one stone, he kills them, one after the other. Seventy. Seventy men slaughtered on one stone. Do you know how long that must have taken? I don't think it took one second, so it was definitely more than a minute since there was, were 70 of them. They had to watch this unfold. This one man murders 70 individuals. The rebellion of Abimelech was simply this, making Abimelech king through murder. Know that. Take hold of that. This is what was happening. Abimelech was becoming king, not through obedience to the Lord, not because the Lord had chosen him, but because of evil and wickedness. Abimelech murdered his brothers. Now, in reality, this is a little bit like father, like son. If you remember our story from last week, Gideon, when he went beyond what God had called him to do, He himself killed his own countrymen along with the Midianites when they failed to follow him. Abimelech, he decides to cut out a few steps, and and even before people can have the opportunity to rebel, he eliminates the problem. This leads to the next set of verses, which I call the prediction. The prediction. Because did you notice in the text, not all of Gideon's sons died. There was one man by the name of Jotham who survived the attack. He he hid himself. And verse 7 says this, When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood up on Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. This is quite an amazing thing. I'm going to circle back to it in just a minute. Jotham survives. Mount Gerizim was the mountain of of blessing. 
It was a significant place within the, the worship of the people of God. It's the mountain that when they came into the promised land, that the people recommitted themselves with Joshua to following the Lord. Now Jotham comes to that same mountain. We don't know the layout, but he's far enough away that he, that he feels like he's safe. But he calls out the leaders of Shechem. He says that he has a message for them. And here's the message. It's going to come in the form of a parable. I'm going to read this story, and I'm going to just tell you quickly what it's all about. Here's what he says to them. Verse 8. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and you reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my goodness? Look at, there's this comfort that they're having. And, and go and hold sway over the trees. And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees, they said to the bramble, that's a, a thorn bush. We got those all over the place. You come and you reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let the fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This is a pretty straightforward parable. It doesn't take a literary genius to figure out who's who in this parable and who they represent. The trees of the field represent the people of Israel. And Jotham is saying, you, the leaders of the people of Israel, went to find yourself a king. And first you went to the most fruitful, most productive members of society. You went to Gideon's son. They're the olive trees, the fig trees, and the grapevines. And you went to them, and you sought them to be rulers over you. And there's a little bit of an indictment here against Gideon's son in, in the story, because it seems like they were capable to take over the mantle of, of at least ruling the people, not necessarily as a king, but just ruling. And they all rejected it, which left that opening for Abimelech to come. And because the, the good trees, because the good sons, if you would, would not lead they went to the lowest common denominator. They went to the bramble who represents Abimelech. A bramble was a useless at best and dangerous at worst part of nature. It was a thorn bush that could easily catch fire and truly would offer no shade. Yet they went to this one who was ultimately useless and dangerous to them and they appointed him as king. That's what Jotham is saying. Don't you see, Israel, what you have done? You have gone against the Lord. You have raised up someone whom you should have, have not. And then in verse 19, he says, in case you don't get my parable, in case you don't understand that what I'm saying is ultimately a curse, a judgment upon you, look at verse 19. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. And let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem have a curse spoken against them. The curse being, listen. If what you did was right and holy in the eyes of God, you know, i.e. murdering all of Gideon's sons so that this guy could be king, if that was right and holy, then everything's going to be fine. But if it was evil and wickedness in the eyes of God, then you should expect that you're going to devour one another. 
the prediction of Jotham is very, very simple here. He comes and he speaks to the people and he says to them, you have done evil. You have done evil. And all who have done evil will receive God's judgment. That's the prediction. All who have done evil will receive God's judgment. You know, as I read this part of the story, I just wanted to stop here for a moment and say, I think there is a, a kind of a partial takeaway for us. Consider the courage of Jotham right now. Consider the boldness. Church, I think we should already know the answer to this. But what Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem did, was it evil? Let's try that one more time, see if we can all get on the same page here. What Abimelech and the leader of Shechem did to Gideon's son, was that evil? Yes, it was murder, and God condemns murder. It was wickedness. Jotham survives it. And what does Jotham do? He stands up and he speaks out against the wickedness. Did you see that? Like, I think there's just a subtle, maybe not so subtle takeaway for us. God's people, God's people are in places, knowing right from wrong, where when we see wickedness and we see evil, it is right and it is good for us to call it out. Jotham displays great courage. He does not let the evil and the wickedness of the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech go unannounced. He lets everybody know what they did here. This is evil. This is wrong. He might be king, but it doesn't matter. Over and over again in the scriptures, did you know that we as the people of God are called to call out sin? Now, we must be careful that when we see evil and we see wickedness, we don't call it out in a sinful manner. Are you tracking with me on that? Because sometimes people see injustice and evil and they call it out, but they sin in the process and it kind of negates the whole thing. Ephesians 5, 11 through 12 says this, take no part in the unfruitfulness of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. In Psalm 94, 16, the psalmist calls out, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? You know what the answer should be? Me. I will. We will. When there's evil and wickedness in our world, when we see it, we don't stand silent. We call it for what it is. In 1960, there was a little girl by the name of Ruby Bridges who lived in New Orleans. And at that time, there was segregation that was taking place, and she was the little black girl who was living there. You've probably seen the story. The federal judge said that there could no longer be segregation in the schools. And so the black children of her community were allowed to attend the school with the white children of her community. And yet when the time came for that to happen, all the parents of the white children pulled their children out of the school. And the black parents, for filler of their children, pulled their kids out of the school. And so on the first day of classes, there was only one little girl who went to school. That little black girl, Ruby Bridges. And she was escorted 
to school because on either side of the entryway to her school, there were people with Confederate flags yelling and hurling slurs at this little girl. And so she had officers. You can look at the picture. It's there online of them ex- escorting her into the to school. <clears throat> and years later, someone was interviewing her mother about why they did what they did, why, why they still let their daughter go to school that day. And I, and I loved this. She said, there's a lot of people who talk about doing good and a lot of people who argue about what's good and what's not good, but there are other folks who just put their lives on the line for what's right. It was right what Ruby was doing. It was right to ultimately break apart segregation in our country. That little girl, along with her parents, weren't afraid to stand up and to do what was right. Jotham, in our story, was an example of a man who saw evil and who was not afraid to call it out. I wonder, in our world today, what God might continue to call us to As the cultural divide continues to increase, as we see evil being called good and good being called evil, there will need to be within the people of God a a courage unlike any that has probably existed in recent history within America to ultimately stand up and to call evil for what it is, to point people to what is good. We need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared Jotham is an example of when one of God's people ultimately stands up and does it. And to think that there won't be a cost, we'd be foolish, because look at even Jotham himself says, after I spoke, I I had to hide because my life was in danger. After the rebellion and after the prediction, what happens? Well, the following verses are what I call the retribution. The retribution. It starts in verse 22. This small little verse has a lot to say. Verse 22 just simply comes and says, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Now, we were just told right before Jotham's prediction that Abimelech had been made king, and now we're being told that he reigned three years. For the very first time in the book of Judges, we are not told how long a judge ruled at the end of his life, but right here, in the midst of the story. Every other judge up to this point, and even the judges following, we are told how long they ruled after they died. So there's a foreshadowing here that things are going to be different with Abimelech. And sure enough, they are. I'm going to summarize key portions of these verses so that we can get through it. Verse 23 says that ultimately God sent an evil spirit that we're going to talk about that sent division between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. What that manifested as was that there was a man named Gaal who ultimately arrived in Shechem and did exactly what Abimelech did. During Abimelech's rule, after three years of Abimelech's rule, Gaal comes into Shechem and he's got this idea. He comes to the leaders of Shechem and he says, hey, why are we following Abimelech? Like, what's the deal with that? I mean, he's from Shechem, but he's a Gideon's son. He's not one of us. And so look at verse 28. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing that Abimelech said. And so he plots with the people of Shechem to overthrow Abimelech. Now, fortunately for Abimelech, but unfortunately for the people of Shechem, there's this guy named Zebul who was living in Shechem and was one of their leaders. And he was loyal to Abimelech, and so he goes to Abimelech, and he tells Abimelech, 
what they're planning and trying to overthrow him. Needless to say, Abimelech's not thrilled, verse 34. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, literally the day he heard about it, rose up and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. They surround the city. It's hysterical what happens next. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, you know, the guy who wanted to be king, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. It's nighttime. And Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose from ambush. So they're coming towards the city. And when, God, when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down the mountaintops. And Zebul, remember, he's on the side of Abimelech, said to him, oh, you mistake the shadows of the mountain for men. There's not people coming against us. And Gaal's like, I, I'm pretty sure those are people. Look at the next verse. He spoke again, look, the people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And then I love this verse, verse 38. Then Zebul said to him, Where's your mouth now? You're the guy who was calling out against Abimelech. Why should we serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? And he says, go be a man. Go out and fight them. And so that's what happens next in the text. I'm going to just summarize these things for you. Gaal goes out. He fights against Abimelech. Abimelech with his companies overtakes Gaal and ultimately puts them to task. He subdues them. Gaal runs and flees like a little baby. He, he runs away leaving the city exposed. You know who's still in the city at that time? All those leaders of Shechem. And realizing that they're exposed and they got no help, they do something. The text goes on to tell us that they run to the tower of the city. It was their stronghold, the place where they thought that maybe they could be safe. And so they all huddle up in the tower. We're going to learn that there were 1,000 of them huddling up in this tower for protection. Zerubbabel, or I'm sorry, Abimelech sees it. And he goes to his men and he says, follow me. And they go to the forest, and the text tells us that they grab firewood. They cut down trees. They make firewood, and they surround the tower with all the firewood. And what do you think they do? They strike the match. And pretty soon, the flames are consuming the tower. And the text tells us, verse 49, so every one of the people cut down his bundle, following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Do you all remember Jotham's prediction? What was Jotham's prediction? If this is wrong what you're doing, and it is, Abimelech's going to burn you. And his prediction comes true. The leaders of Shechem die. Abimelech wins. Now, there were two parts to his prediction, right? One was that the leaders of Shechem would burn. What was the other part of the prediction? Abimelech, you're going to burn too. But what happens is this. The story tells us that after he wins against the leaders of Shechem, he's emboldened. He sees the city of Thebes and he says, wait a second, I could expand my kingdom. I could expand my power. Thebes was a city that wasn't ultimately under his control. And so it says that he advances in verses 50 and following on Thebes. And when he gets there, the people of Thebes freak out. And guess what they do? They run and they go and they hide in their own tower. Sound familiar? Does that sound like a smart idea? No. And so Abimelech's like, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. And so he calls his men and they do the exact same thing. They surround the tower with wood. And as they're surrounding it, as Abimelech is under the tower, I just got to read it. Verse 52. 
And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Verse 53, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. You read that right. A gal takes what is equivalent to an ancient KitchenAid, <laughs> throws it out the window, and those suckers are heavy, right? You know the KitchenAids? She uses a millstone, which was used to crush grain, throws it out the window. We don't even know that she's aiming for anything. And it falls, and it strikes Abimelech, and it literally crushes his skull, but it doesn't kill him. He's still conscious. Verse 54, then he called out quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. <laughs> Make of it what you will, <laughs> okay? And his young man thrust him through, and he died. The leaders of Shechem, Abimelech, they literally devour each other. His reign comes to an end by the hand of a woman, a millstone thrown. And look at how the verse continues. And when the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his house. <laughs> oh, I guess the party's over. Verse 56 and verse 57 are important. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamar. Thus ends the story of Abimelech. But what do we make of it all? How does this story have anything to do with, with justice and, and, and helping us make sense of the broken world around us? Well, I think when you ask a couple of questions of the story, the questions being, what does this tell us about God, who he is and what he's done, what does this tell us about ourselves? And what does this tell us about God's relationships to us that a few things become abundantly clear? The first thing that jumps out to me in this story is something that we're made aware of at the very end. And it's very simply this. We all have a problem inside of us, and that problem is sin. I started by telling you the story of a man who broke into a store to rob it. I told you the story of this poor child that was murdered and the people who did it. But then we read this story, and sometimes we can think that the people out there are the ones who deserve justice, that, that it's an outside-of-us problem as far as, as why people do the things that they do. But if the story of Abimelech shows us something about ourselves, it shows us that we all have a problem inside of us. And here's why. This is the first story in the book of Judges where there is no external enemy. Did you see that? Every other judge that was raised up was raised up by God to conquer some foreign force who had invaded Israel. But this is the first story when you read it that you begin to discover that the problem that the Israelites were having was an internal one. 
They weren't warring against themselves. Their enemy was not somebody outside of them. Their enemy was inside of them. It started with Gideon, whose self-centeredness and glory created this whole problem with his children. Shechem then shows us this disregard by turning to false idols. And then Abimelech, who wants to grasp for power for himself. When you come to chapter 10, look at this once again with me. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua. There arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua. Who was he rescuing them from? Yeah, you can say it with me. Themselves. They were the problem. It wasn't them out there. When it comes to the issue of justice and the need for justice, we have to be really honest with ourselves. We have to believe what the Bible says. If we're going to think about justice rightly, if we're going to think about the brokenness of our world, we have to be faithful to proclaiming, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These children and young people who are baptized today made that confession they recognized that they were sinners in need of a savior. Israel's problem, everyone's problem, the reason why we need justice in the world is not because there's just a few bad eggs. It's because all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. So if you're going to think about justice rightly, we're going to talk in a minute how it is right and how it is good to be angry with evil and wickedness, to, to see it and to call it out. But if any of us here today thinks for one moment that inside of every one of our hearts is not a deep-rooted problem that needs to be addressed from which we all need to be delivered from, then you can't really ever claim that you want justice for anything. Because the truth of the matter is we all need rescue. We all need deliverance. Because you see, if there is sin in the world and if it resides in us, and it is, that's a big problem because of what I'm about to say next. What I'm about to say next is this. This text, what it tells us about God, what it screams to us is that the God of the Bible, the God who reveals himself in the scriptures, our God, he is just. Our God is just. We know that he is just even in just reading this story because the text makes abundantly clear that Abimelech did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The leaders of Shechem did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when you come to the end of the text in verses 56 and 57, look at what it says. Why do they ultimately both burn? Why are these two parties ultimately destroyed? Was it by accident? Well, because they didn't plan well enough? No, it says Verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father and his 70 brothers, and God also made all the evil of, Shem, of Shechem return on their heads. Who made these men pay for their wickedness? Who did it? God. He saw their evil, he saw their wickedness, and he said, I'm going to give you what you deserve. You will be destroyed. You will be consumed. One of the things that we must never lose sight of is that our 
God is just. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It's not there in your notes. You might want to write this for later. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, for whatever one sows, that also will he reap. God will not be mocked. God is not blind to evil. The story shows us, church, that when there's evil and wickedness in the world, he sees it, he knows about it, and he punishes and he judges it. But this story tells us something about the judgment and justice of God. For us, we sometimes believe that justice and punishment for one's wrongdoing needs to happen now. You did wrong? You need to be punished now. How long did Abimelech reign wickedly in Israel? What did the text say? Do you remember? Three years. It took three years before God leveled his judgment and his justice against these people. God's justice is sometimes slower than what we think, and sometimes it is subtler than what we think, but it always comes to pass. In fact, you and I know that at the end of the day, there's not one wicked deed that will not go unpunished. Do you know why? Because while I love all of you and I see you today, in a hundred years, none of you will be here and neither will I. We'll all be dead. And God says that the wages of sin, the wages of evil, the wages of wickedness is what? Death. Everyone experiences God's justice for their sins. And you know what makes this far more scary for me? Like, I don't even like talking about this at, at times just because of, of how serious it is. But it's not just that you will die a physical death. Every single one of these individuals who died under the judgment of God, if something doesn't change that, if there's not some covering or forgiveness for your sin and my sin, the Bible says that it's not just a temporary physical death that you experience. There is an eternal hell with ongoing judgment, or there's an eternal heaven in the presence of God. And God's justice is of such a nature that when he mediates his judgment upon sinners, it's not just that we die physically, but we either enter into his blessing or we enter into eternal judgment. There is nothing that you could do to a human being here on earth that compares to the kind of judgment every single sinner will experience in hell. Our God is just, and our God, better than all of us, understands how powerful his wrath is that when he writes to the church through Peter, he says that I wish that none would perish because you guys have no idea how just I am, how bad your wickedness is. All sin in the eyes of God deserves an eternal damnation. And every wicked person, which includes you and me, who does not have something done to have our sin and wickedness dealt with will face that judgment. If you want to know why God wishes that none should perish, it's because he knows what... Listen, the author of Hebrews said it this way. In Hebrews 10.31, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God because God is so just that every evil deed will be punished. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for whatever his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. And wait, it gets better. Did you know that God's justice cannot be thwarted? God's justice cannot be thwarted. So like, there's a certain peace in knowing that wickedness will be punished. There's a certain peace that comes in knowing that, listen, no evildoer will escape from God's judgment. Like when I think about what happened to that child, I, I think about the, the evil of, of that and there's a sobering reality that unless something intercedes on those people, like they will experience the, the, not just the judgment of the government, but they'll experience the judgment of the, of the holy God. And, and, and when God says, I will demonstrate my justice, listen, no, no one can thwart his justice. And you know why we know that? Because in verse 23, it literally says that God sent an evil spirit to cause division between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Now, I can't go into the depths of all of, of what that means, but that means like, look, in, there are forces of evil in the world. There's good and there is bad. There are forces of evil. But listen, even the forces of evil have to do the bidding of God. It's not as though we live in this duality where, where good and evil are at war and maybe, just maybe, evil's gonna win the day. No, God wins. He's holy. He's just. He's all-powerful. And so all evil and wickedness will be dealt with. Now, could you imagine if I closed my Bible right here and said, have a good day? The story shows us that we have a problem. The story shows us that God is just. And the story shows us that God's justice cannot be thwarted. But the story also shows us that God is also gracious. That for all the evildoers, which include ourselves, remember that it's not just those out there that deserve God's justice. It's those of us in here. The story shows us that God is gracious. Where does it show us that God is gracious? Because in chapter 10, it starts and it says that God sent forth a judge, Tola, to come and save Israel from itself. But you know what the text doesn't say? The text doesn't say that Israel called out to God for a judge to rescue them. Do you hear me? The people who deserved judgment because they were wicked, God sent forth for them a savior before they even called out for one. Does that story sound familiar? God rescued a people. He took the steps before they even called out. Friends, this is the story of the Bible. Our God is gracious. He is just. Evildoers will be punished. But he also comes to all of us who are evildoers and the wicked and says, yet you too, you too can find grace and you too can find mercy because our God is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And the clearest place that we see it is not just in Tola, the judge, but in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Amen. And listen, my call to you today is don't play around with this. This is one of those messages where I kind of get like really serious and I say, if you have not owned up to your own wickedness, stop calling out to justice in the world 
when you see wickedness. Because there's a wickedness and an evil inside every human heart that has to be dealt with. And the thing is, God has made a way for it to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, if you accept and believe in him, you will get what you deserve, but what you will get is forgiveness, redemption, and freedom. Praise God that he's just, but praise God all the more that he is gracious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, as we close our time right now, Lord, I just pray that while this is a heavy word and a hard story and brings us into the realities of a broken world, or that we just simply wouldn't move on from this place today, that our hearts would be stirred in a couple of ways. And so, Spirit, would you empower us in a couple of ways? Lord, if we are in Christ, if we've experienced grace, if we know the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if you have dealt with our wickedness, then, Lord, embolden us as we saw Jotham to be a people who call out wickedness, call people to repentance, that we would never, out of fear, Lord, not speak to the evils in our worlds and seek to do what is right. Would you embolden us to do that? But Lord, would you also help us to understand so serious is your justice, so serious is your holiness that there is not one person who will pass through your judgment because they're a good person, but that all have sinned, all are wicked, all of us, Lord, are murderous in thought and even in deed. And so too, Lord, we'll encounter a judgment unless we trust in the judge, the great Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to embrace your grace, to receive Christ as our Savior, and then to live in his righteousness. Lord, and not fall prey to the wickedness of the world. And so we ask this through our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen and amen.